Well, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9 and uh, hold your place at verse 46 as we're going to continue in our uh, series in the book of Luke that we've called Radical Love. So we'll look at this text uh, here in just a couple of minutes. You know, within uh, most human beings, there seems to be a pretty strong desire to be the best at something. To, to have some ability, some area of expertise where you rise to the top and, and you're just the best. You're, you're the, the greatest at that particular thing. And, and you see this desire early in life. We see it uh, in our children. You know, as soon as they can speak in sentences, they begin arguing about who is the best at things. Have you, have you noticed this? You've... You've seen this. I'm not the only one. Yep. Okay. They, they argue about... I, I missed it. They, they argue about, uh, you know, who's the best at a video game? Uh, who's the best uh, soccer player? Who's the best speller? Uh, I mean, there really is no end to the arguments you can have about who's the best. You know, who's the best at eating macaroni and cheese? Uh, <laughs> Who's the best at drinking liquid the fastest? I, I mean, it just it just never ends. And uh, I'm sure that many of you qu- uh, parents have fielded questions from your child after a soccer practice or a soccer game, saying, "What do you think? You think I'm I'm probably the the best one on the team? Don't you think?" <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> you are awesome. Uh, <laughs> best baseball player. You know, the best singer, the best cheerleader, the, the best artist. They, they want to know, am I the best? Out of all the ones that you've seen, am I the best? Am I uh, the greatest? And we see this, uh, this desire to be the best in advertising as companies tout their product as being the, the best product you've ever seen, the, the greatest product you've ever seen, or the best service uh, that there is out there. You know, whenever I try a product or service that's touted itself as the best at something, and in my opinion, they weren't the best at it, uh, I often think of ways that, that, that they could go about making the claim to be the greatest and be accurate even though they aren't the greatest. And so I've come up with some things like this. So instead of a, a place that bills themselves as having the greatest hamburger in town when they don't, The way they could still be the greatest is they could say something like this, the greatest hamburger on the plate in front of you. (laughs) And and they would be right. That would be the greatest one on the plate in front of me. Or, Or instead of being the best mechanic in the entire city of Columbus, they could do something like this, the best mechanic between 2500 and 2503 High Street. And, and they would be right. They would be the absolute greatest. So, thank you for laughing. Uh, of course, for most of us, um, you know, life kind of takes a toll on us, and we begin to, to realize that, uh, that, that maybe we aren't the best, that maybe we aren't the greatest, and that, that being the best, being the greatest at something is really difficult to, to pull off. Uh, this began to happen to me when I was uh, cut from uh, the 10th grade basketball team uh, after the very first day of tryouts. <laughs> Uh, 
I mean, you just, you just know. They, they didn't just think it was questionable whether I could, could be valuable to the team. They, like, didn't even want me messing up practice anymore. I mean, don't come back tomorrow. It was, it was difficult. It, it, you'll appreciate the story better when you know this. I was the year before my freshman year of uh, high school. I was in a very small Christian school. I mean, there were like twelve guys in the entire high school, and so that particular year, as a freshman, I was the starting point guard <laughs> on the high school basketball team. And the next year, I go to public school and I can't make it past tryout day one. All right, so that was tough. So, so, so we figure out that, okay, maybe we're not uh, the greatest. And so we settle for something, uh, maturely so, we settle for being the best that we can be. And there's great wisdom in that, uh, being the best that we can be. That's, that's really all uh, that we can do. But, but sometimes when we settle for that for ourselves, we look for other ways to uh, identify with greatness. We, we try to live vicariously through someone else. We try to attain greatness through someone else's efforts that we can somehow claim ownership of what they have done. So you see this a lot with those of us who are sports fans. You see this a lot with Ohio State fans. You know, when the football team, the Ohio State football team won the 2002 national championship, we all won the national championship, right? At least that's what we claimed. We won. We won the national championship. As I was sitting on my couch eating chips and drinking ridiculous amounts of soda, I won the national championship. We, we feel like we uh, are a part of that. And of, and, of course, every year we expect that our teams uh, should be the greatest that there is. We expect this every single year from our teams. And if they aren't the greatest... We want answers. And you guys know me well enough to know I'm talking about myself. I want an answer when Ohio State is not the greatest at something. And so we say things like, you know, Ohio State should be competing for the national title every year. And then you have things like this. We will say things like, there's no reason that Ohio State should not be among the very Elite of the elite every single year. And this is said by somebody who, who if you knew, they would be ranked 57,000th out of 57,003 in their respective area of expertise. And yet we expect someone else to be the greatest. We, we want to identify uh, with them. If we can't be the best, if we can't be the greatest, uh, then we find other ways to, to kind of get what we're looking for from that. Uh, we, we at least want to be recognized in some special way. We, we somehow want to find a place that we can be uh, set apart from everyone else. We want some place, we want to find some place of prominence, some place of prestige. Our text today, uh, Luke 9, 46 through 50, tells us that the disciples of Jesus wanted prominence. They, they wanted prestige. They wanted to be the best. They wanted to be 
the greatest. Verse 46 says this, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, we're not told why the argument started. Uh, Perhaps it started because just a few verses before this, Peter, James, and John had been privileged to, to be with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when God had voiced his approval from heaven uh, of Jesus, only the second time, uh, only one of uh, the second of two times that occurred, the other being at Jesus' baptism. Uh, so, so Peter, James, and John were privileged to be a part of that. Perhaps that started the debate about who was the greatest. Uh, perhaps the argument started because in chapter 9, verse 40, we're told that uh, the disciples had been uh, unable to drive out a demon that had been uh, in a child. And so maybe this prompted uh, the discussion about who would be the greatest. Whatever the reason, the disciples were concerned uh, about being set apart from one another. Uh, they were concerned about having a place of prominence. They were concerned with prestige. They were, they were filled with ambition. They desired superiority. They wanted to be the greatest of Christ followers. And we're very much like them. We want prestige. We want prominence. Many of us uh, are ambitious people. We're sometimes inappropriately ambitious. We, we desire superiority, some way of distinguishing ourselves from, from everybody else. This manifests itself in a lot of, uh, lot of different ways. Uh, we really don't have this problem here uh, at VCC. I mean, really, we don't. Sometimes I say that sarcastically, but, but today I mean it. We really don't have this problem. Uh, but in some churches, the process that leads to people leading ministries or sitting on church committees can become a very political process. And people uh, vie and compete with one another to, to try to gain support among the congregation for, for the role that they desire because they so much want to be set apart uh, in some special way. Uh, This manifests itself when we secretly envy another person because of the way that God has used them. And, you know, maybe that's part of what was going on here with the disciples. Uh, Maybe we see someone whose ministry has been more fruitful than our own, and so secretly uh, we're jealous. Maybe we see someone who has a spiritual gift that we've always thought would be really, really cool uh, to have, but we don't have it. And so we see them exercising the spiritual gift and we're a little put off. Uh, we might even accuse them of being uh, arrogant or, or showing off their gift when in reality we're just jealous because we wanted to be set apart in that particular way. Uh, maybe you see this at work in yourself at your job. Uh, maybe you have found a tendency in yourself to always try to upstage your coworker. Uh, in the eyes of the the boss. And and, and maybe you know that this isn't just a matter of you doing a good job and so setting yourself apart just because you did a good job. I mean, I would encourage you to do a great job. Set yourself apart if, if doing a great job does that. But you know that it's gone beyond that, that it's gone beyond concern for a job well done. You know that you've gone to a place where it's inappropriate. Maybe you've even found yourself in subtle ways that could never be pinned to you trying to undermine a coworker because you want to be the greatest in comparison to the coworker. Sometimes we can allow ourselves to become ambitious, competitive, uh, desiring superiority, even when it comes to something like our church. 
You know, I, I hope that those of you who come to church here think highly of it. I, I hope that you think it's a strong and good church. You know, but sometimes Christians can become inappropriately ambitious uh, even about the local body of believers that they belong to. And so we secretly think that either our church or our denomination or whatever is somehow better than another church because of whatever. I mean, you could insert a lot of different possibilities here. Our music is better. Our denomination is better. We have more people at our church. All of these things are examples of, of good Christian ways to strive for superiority, of striving to be the greatest in some way. But greatness isn't what we often think it is. Greatness is not measured by your vocation. Greatness is not measured by coming in first at something. Greatness is not measured by, by finding a place of prominence or prestige, a place of honor. Greatness is not being superior to someone else in some way. It's just not. Greatness is not being in the church with the best music or the most people or the coolest building. Good for you. <laughs> or, or the best coffee or the best coffee. You ever seen churches that tried to like tout their greatness through their coffee? Like set themselves apart from all the other churches because of how great their coffee is? You know, like, here we have Starbucks coffee. Oh, wow. Or, or something else. Well, we wage our own little war against that kind of thing here at the vineyard. We offer you Folgers. <laughs> We are not trying to be superior in our coffee. <laughs> Folgers is it. And maybe that's why some of you don't drink our coffee. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so according to Jesus, greatness isn't measured by any of those types of things. The world has a definition of greatness. And many of us in the church have, I think, unintentionally adopted the world's definition of greatness. And so we strive for these different ways to set ourselves apart, these different ways to assert our superiority in some way. But Jesus defines greatness differently. And in response to the disciples arguing with one another over who would be the greatest, Jesus took a few minutes to properly define greatness for them and to properly define greatness for us. Here's what he says in verse 47 of our text. It begins, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, the thoughts of the disciples, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. He that is least among you all, he is the greatest. You know, this is one of these teachings of Jesus that we hear and we kind of think, yeah, yeah. Okay, Jesus. That's nice. And then we go on. But Jesus really meant this. He really meant it. And it 
it really is something that we need to embrace. I think Jesus here is communicating at least four things about greatness that he wants his disciples to understand. And so for the next few minutes, I want to share these four things that I think go together to to define greatness according to Jesus. They're closely related, but, but four things. First, according to Jesus, greatness is welcoming the helpless, the overlooked, the marginalized. The child that Jesus had stand beside him represents all of the helpless and so thought unimportant people in the world. Children were not highly esteemed in in this first century setting. And, And so the child represents all of those who are helpless and unimportant. Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches us that greatness isn't achieved by being first. It's not achieved by being the best. It's not achieved by attaining a position of honor. Greatness is achieved when we get to the place that we're willing to welcome those who are the least by human accounting. When we are willing to welcome those. And so if you want to see how you're doing and moving toward greatness... You really need to change the evaluation process. It's not evaluated according to Jesus by by how you're distancing yourself from your colleagues. It's not evaluated by awards and recognitions at your job. The way it's evaluated is are you welcoming, are you serving those who in some way are helpless, marginalized, overlooked. And just to give you one example of this, so many times uh, churches have been guilty uh, of, of really pushing back against Jesus' teaching here in this way, and that many times churches have seen children's ministry as an sort of unfortunate necessity of ministering to adults. If you want to minister to adults, y'all keep having kids, so we got to do something with the kids so we can get to the adults, so we'll have some child care. You've been a part of churches probably that have thought that way. Maybe you have thought that way. Uh, I've admitted in the past to a long time ago thinking that way. But it's not so. Welcoming children is one of the ways that a Christian, a church, can actually be great in the way that Jesus counts greatness. So to all of you here today, and many of the people who I'd like to hear this are over there serving children right now, but many of you in here serve children as well. To all of you who, who serve our children, you are doing something that Jesus says is great. You are meeting the definition of greatness. It's not glamorous. It can be difficult. You, you may wonder when the kids aren't paying attention if you're really accomplishing anything. We parents may not thank you enough or we may not thank you at all. 
But Jesus says greatness is welcoming children. And so if you're doing that, you are doing something that is great. Those of you who serve the hurting in our community by uh, serving in the food pantry, you are doing something great as Jesus counts greatness. You're you're serving those who are experiencing a time when they're they're helpless to meet needs of their own. Uh, And there may not be five people in the church that know you're serving in that way. We're not regularly parading you in front of the congregation on Sundays and saying, here are the folks who are serving the needy. But you are doing something that Jesus says is great. It meets his definition of greatness. And so all of us here today, if if we want to attain greatness, we need to examine ourselves and we need to ask, how are we doing at welcoming those who are Helpless, vulnerable, needy. Jesus says if we want to be great, you've got to welcome someone in need. You've got to extend your hand. You've got to open your arms. You've got to open your heart to someone who can't give you anything, to someone that you can't benefit in any way from, but that that someone needs you in their life. Secondly, and very closely related to the first, greatness according to Jesus is properly valuing everyone created in the image of God. And that's everyone. Everyone is created in the image of God. When we fail to welcome the child, when we fail to welcome the overlooked person, the helpless person, the person who society says doesn't measure up, we are exposing ourselves as viewing them as something less than who, uh, what they are, something less than who they are. Because the truth is that every single person that you meet, no matter how troubled they are, no matter how needy they are, no matter how much Satan has led them away from God's plan for their life, every person that you meet bears the image of God. Every person you meet was created in God's image. Notice that Jesus says, whoever welcomes the child welcomes him and the one who sent him, God the Father. When you welcome that person that that alcohol has damaged so badly that it's kind of hard to look at their life, you you, you know, their life is in just, it's in such disarray, it's just, it's just so awful, the destruction that's come on their life. Or maybe someone has, has given themselves so much to alcohol or a drug of some kind, maybe, maybe meth, that it's just kind of hard to even look on their person and see the damage that sin has done to their life. But when you welcome that person that's been so damaged in this way, you are welcoming and investing in someone who bears the image of God. Sure, the image is is horribly marred, but they still bear his image. And Jesus goes so far as to say that when we welcome them, we welcome him and we welcome the Father. That is, that is strong, strong stuff from Jesus. And it's convicting stuff. I mean, think of the times that we turn away that, that we don't want to touch someone. We don't want to be involved in their lives. 
You know, this reminds us of another of Jesus' teachings. Matthew 25. When he says at the judgment, he's going to commend some folks by saying things like this. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited. And those being commended, he says, are going to respond, when did we do this? We don't remember doing any of these things for you, Jesus. And Jesus is going to answer, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So if you want to be great as greatness is defined by Jesus, recognize that every single person bears the image of God. Every single person. And here's the third thing. Greatness, according to Jesus, is quiet and humble service. But it goes beyond that. Greatness, according to Jesus, is a willingness not just to serve the least but to be the least. Greatness, according to Jesus, is a willingness to be the least. I think there are two major applications of Jesus' teaching here. The first application was covered in those first two points, is that Jesus calls us to respond rightly to children, representing all those who are helpless or unimportant. Now, in this third point and in number four, these fall under what I think is the second major application is that Jesus calls us to become as little children. So so he calls us to rightly respond to the helpless and the unimportant, the marginalized, the overlooked. And then he calls us to being uh, willing to embrace being the least, being the overlooked, being the marginalized person. Jesus isn't saying that greatness is defined only by a willingness to serve the least, but by a willingness to become the least. I mean, he says it very plainly here in the text, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. He's not just saying he who serves the least is the greatest. He's saying he who is the least, he's the greatest. And we shouldn't be surprised by this kind of teaching coming from Jesus. Uh, After all, the one doing the teaching is the one of whom this was written, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself, what? Nothing. Made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He who was God made himself nothing. Wow. He who was rich for our sake became poor. So you want to be great as Jesus counts greatness, you're going to have to be willing not just to serve the least, but to be the least, to be the least. And we we don't want to do that. But this is what Jesus says greatness really is. It is humble. It is quiet service in roles that go unnoticed. 
by people who are okay with going unnoticed because they've decided that Jesus is right about greatness and the world is wrong about greatness. Greatness, according to Jesus, is doing the mundane, the overlooked job, the unappreciated job, and never minding that we don't get thanked for it. Because we've learned to embrace Christ's call to count ourselves among the least. We don't assume we have any rights to recognition or prestige or honor. We've released all of that. We don't consider any of that an insult. We don't consider a lowly job or a lowly position an insult because we gave up our rights to superiority. We, we gave up our rights to prestige and honor. We, we surrendered our right to grasp after the privileged position, just like our Savior surrendered His right to cling to His divinity in order to suffer the excruciating death of the cross. Greatness as Jesus counts it is humbly accepting that your mother or your father think that you are weak because you've decided that you need Jesus in your life. Greatness as Jesus Jesus counts it is humbly accepting that your brother or your sister think that you are a nut job because you follow after Jesus. Greatness as Jesus counts, greatness is embracing uh, what the world accuses you of. And that is that you need a crutch to get through life. It's, it's embracing and saying it's okay that the world sees you as intellectually inferior because you cling to this antiquated belief in a God who created and sustains the world. You're okay with that. You're okay with that. You don't expect anyone to, to revere you or place you in a place of prestige or honor because you understand that Jesus has defined greatness as being counted among the least, being identified with the marginalized in society. And finally, greatness is being identified with Jesus. When Jesus says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, the application, I believe, goes in two directions. When we welcome the least, we welcome Jesus. But when we become the least for the sake of Christ, then whoever welcomes us welcomes Christ and the one who sent him, God the Father. This speaks to our role as ambassadors of Christ. And think about this. Whoever welcomes us welcomes Christ. I mean, just, just focus on that for a minute. That is a pretty powerful thought. Maybe you think I've overstated this. Maybe you think I'm pressing too much out of this passage. Brian, come on. Come on, these little few little things here there, you came up with that? Well, if you think that, then I would direct your attention to chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says to 72 of his disciples who he sent out to do his work, he who listens to me, uh, who, I'm sorry, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. As a follower of Jesus, he so closely identifies with you. And you are so closely identified with him that he says when people reject you, they are actually rejecting him. 
And herein lies true greatness. We have no greatness on our own, but we represent and we are identified with ultimate greatness. We, we have the name that is above every other name. It's been applied to each of our lives. We, we are ambassadors for the one who has the greatest name. We are ambassadors for the one to whose name every knee in heaven and earth is going to bow. There is no greatness in us, but we are identified and we represent the one who is the greatest. Greatness is found in being identified with Christ, the humble servant who is also the conquering king, the Alpha and Omega, the creator and sustainer of the universe. So the disciples asked Jesus, who will be the greatest? In response, Jesus defines greatness in this way for them. And then I want to mention here a little interesting uh, bit of information that Leon uh, Morris notes in his commentary on Luke. The NIV version of the Bible, which we use here at the Vineyard, is is a very good and reliable translation of the Bible. Uh, but in this particular passage, the, the, the NIV has translated a word differently than some of the more literal translations of the Bible have done so. Uh, the, the NIV says that Jesus replied, For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Other translations, the NASB, the ESV, the HCSB, all translate it something like this. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The NIV says greatest. These others say he who is least among you all is the one who is great. They all say Jesus defines who is great, not who is greatest. Here's what I think is going on there, and you, you can decide for yourself if you think this is right or not, but I think Jesus just isn't having any of this greatest argument. He's just having none of it. We're not talking about who is the greatest. If you want to know who is going to get uh, my approval as being great, I'll tell you that, but all of this competitive stuff, we're, we're not doing that. He identifies who is great but he doesn't offer greatest to anyone. And I think it's pretty simple why he doesn't. Because there can only be one greatest. I, I, I mean, greatest applies only to greatest. And there's only one. And it is the one who didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. Greatest only applies to Jesus. Listen, our striving for superiority over others, our striving for prestige and prominence and privilege, our striving to be recognized as superior to our peers, Jesus doesn't want any of that. Here's what Jesus wants. Humble service to others... A humble renunciation of our rights, privileges, prestige, power. He who is least is the one who is great. 
And I know some of us right now are just reacting negatively to this. We don't want to be the least. Or we're thinking of some other teaching we've heard in the past. Some valid teachings that remind us who we are in Christ. You know, we're a royal priesthood. And, And so you're pushing back against this. Just so you know, you're not pushing back against me. You're pushing back against Jesus. He's the one who taught this. He's the one who taught it. And it's not inconsistent with knowing that we're a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. It's not inconsistent with any of that. Jesus wants us to understand that he who is least is the one who is great. And now something fascinating occurs, at least in my opinion. Look with me at verse 49. Master, John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Realize what's happening here. Realize the context of what we have just read. Jesus has just taught them to stop striving to be the greatest. To, to stop striving for superiority over other people. And no sooner have they heard his teaching than they want to stop someone who's ministering in his name because he's not one of us. Wow. Can you say dense? And yet that's what we're like. You know we're like this. What's Jesus say? Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. And they're saying, you know what? He's not as close to you, Jesus, as we are. Setting themselves apart. Superiority. He's not as close as you are. So he really should not be doing those things in your name. This desire for privilege and position and power, it's ingrained very, very deeply in us. And so they think they have a great case. Man shouldn't be doing this. Not one of us. But Jesus says, don't stop him for whoever is not against you is for you. Those who understand true greatness, greatness as defined by Jesus, are people who are able to affirm the good in other folks. Affirm the good things other people are doing. Everything's not a competition. Everything isn't an opportunity to to separate yourself from the other person. Instead, those who understand true greatness, they want to bless anything good that anybody else is doing. And so here's a a way you can know that you've bought into Jesus' view of greatness. Are you quick to affirm that your group, your ministry, your church, your denomination do not have a monopoly on the name of Jesus? Are you quick to affirm that your ideas about how ministry is best done and, 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 and who can do it and who can't do it, that they're your ideas and you're welcome to them, but, but you don't have a monopoly on who can minister in Jesus' name? 
Be quick to affirm the good that anyone is doing in the name of Christ. And this gives me an opening to to mention something that I I hope doesn't need to be said around here. I I sort of think it probably doesn't need to be said, but, but just in case, we are not in competition with each other in our various ministries here in the church. Not in competition. We're not in competition with other churches in our community or anywhere. We're we're not in competition with any other Christian groups. We're not in competition with other denominations. We just aren't. We are one with all Christians and churches and denominations that are faithful to Christ, that affirm the authority of the Bible. We're one with them. We have our way of doing things. We have our distinctives. We, we have them because we think there is something valuable and worthwhile in the way that we do things. But we do not have our distinctives so that we can set ourselves apart from other churches or other Christians as though somehow we are the insiders with Jesus and they're not quite as connected or quite as pleasing to him. That is not what we're about. We affirm that every Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church, we affirm what they're all doing and we rejoice in knowing that we are part of the one body of Christ with every other Christian and every other Christian organization. That's where we're at. And so I've tried uh, over the last seven years of this church, when when we started this thing, I was vineyard this and vineyard that and the way we do it at the vineyard and, and, and a vineyard view of ministry and a vineyard view of prayer and a vineyard, 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 vineyard. I like the vineyard. We feel pretty good about the vineyard. This is a, this is a Christian way of doing whatever we're doing. And we affirm what all other Christians uh, are doing faithful to Christ in the Bible. Verses 49 and 50 serve as a warning against sectarianism and spiritual elitism, and let us all embrace that warning. You know, one of the things we at the vineyard, it's funny, you know, it's funny the things you can feel superior about. You know, in the vineyard, I think one of the things we've struggled to feel superior with, uh, with feeling superior about is that um, we, we dress casual. Wow, you guys are so superior. You dress casual. You realize that pretty much every church in the country dresses casual now? Yeah, that's, that's a little exaggeration, but, but a lot do. We're superior because we let people uh, uh, stain up the carpet with coffee. <laughs> we are awesome. Uh, most churches serve coffee these days. We're superior because we have contemporary worship. Find a church that doesn't have contemporary worship. I mean, they're out there, but you're going to look a little bit. I mean, these things do not set us apart. All right, I've gotten off track. Let's get back on track. Uh, (laughs) Greatness is welcoming the helpless, 
valuing everyone created in the image of God, a willingness to, to uh, be the least, serve quietly and humbly, and being identified with Christ. So here's a couple of questions for you to consider as we wrap up today. Have you been defining greatness in this way that we've learned about today? If not, how have you been defining it? You just need to think about that. And I submit to all of us today that Jesus' definition of greatness needs to be embraced by every single one of us. And so how can we begin to do this? How can we start to embrace Jesus' definition of greatness? And so I just want to make a couple of suggestions as we reach a conclusion here. Find some job that you have been to this point unwilling to do. Maybe it's because you thought you wouldn't enjoy it. Maybe, and I know you'd never tell anybody this, but maybe in the privacy of your own mind, you have thought that the job was beneath you. Find that job and do it joyfully. Do it in the name of Jesus, the one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay, here's another application. Contact Tirza today. She's right over here on my left and your right. She didn't ask for this, by the way. Might not even want this, but here I go. Contact Tirza today or this week and, and tell her that you want to begin serving in flight school. Welcoming children in the name of Jesus is the first and clearest application of today's text. Oh, yeah, yeah. We see children in the text as being representative of all those who may be considered helpless or unimportant, but, but the first application, the clearest application of the text is welcoming children. So tell Tirza that you want to begin to welcome children. Listen, there is no better way to live out Christ's teachings in these verses than to serve children. There's just no better way to do it. And practically speaking, can I, can I let you in on something? Someday, somewhere down the road, we're going to have to go to two services again. It, it doesn't necessarily look like it today because half of us left somewhere during the service. At least it looked like that. Um, but uh, I wasn't even up here. How did I make anybody mad? I, I just don't get it. But, uh, but someday, uh, we, we've been having the, the auditorium 90% full many Sundays. Someday, we'll have to go to two services. And here's a little secret. We are not going to two services until we can properly staff our children's ministry. Not gonna do it. <laughs> Does anybody know who I was trying to... Uh, all right, very good. All right, I finally pulled off an impression that people could identify. All right. So, so we're just not going to do it. And so here's the deal right now. And I'm, I'm not, please don't take this, I'm not trying to be hard on you or us or anything. I, I'm just telling you the facts. Right now we have 56% of the children's workers that we need if we were to staff two services. And we're not doing it ever again, unless we can properly staff our children's ministry. 
But see, here's the thing. We can't wait until it's time to go to two services to staff for two services. We need to build up the staff right now. And so what we need, 56% I think represents another 14 people that we need uh, committed uh, to, to children's ministry. So we need to build that up right now. Building up right now is a good thing. That's what we want to do. And, and look at it this way. Until we went to two services, if we get it built up where it needs to be, it's just a lighter load for those of you who are serving right now. So we need more people, lighter load. And, and so this is a way, let me draw you back to what I'm doing here. If you, if you, uh, if you want to begin to walk this out, this text that we've applied today, God's been nudging you. Hey, serve in children's ministry. You've been saying, uh, no, 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 Lord, I don't want to do that. Serve in children's ministry. Lord, did you not hear me? I said, I don't want to do that. Serve in children's ministry. Lord, what do I have to say? I mean, no, I'm not going to do it. And he's saying today, once again, listen, I want you to do this. Okay, a couple of quick things. Get involved with the food pantry. Prayerfully consider going to El Salvador next year. It's too late this year, but think about it for next year. Here's one. Take more time with your own children this week. Take more time with your own children this week. You know, in the busyness of all of our lives, our own children sometimes become an overlooked and neglected mission field. So take more time for your own children, but not just, not just willy-nilly time. Intentional time where you are purposefully influencing them for Jesus Christ. Here's the final one. Pray and ask God how he wants you to begin walking out greatness as he has defined it. Why don't you stand?